1: Hello and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Deuteronomy. Moses had been sharing all that God did over the years to bring the nation of Israel to this point, being ready to enter the promised land. God had given them victories, provided for their needs, and established a loving covenantal relationship with himself. In response to all that God had done, Moses tells the people to love God supremely and worship him on his terms. We join Pastor Will in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 1.
0: Remember the whole theme of the book of Deuteronomy is loving God supremely. And chapter 11 ended with verse 32 that said, and you shall observe to do all the statutes and all the judgments which I set before you this day. And that serves as a connecting verse. Because prior to this, Moses has explained this is all that God has done for you guys in all these 40 years. And now in light of all that God's done, you need to love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Everything in you, you know, you need to love him supremely. And so that's Chapter 11, it concludes the section where Moses is exhorting Israel to do that. Now we're going to actually get into the commands. We're going to get into those statutes, into those judgments here in Deuteronomy. Now, that's why frequently Deuteronomy is called second law. That's what duet there means, the idea of the beginning of it. It's a second giving of the law. Now, I don't think that's an entirely accurate statement because most of it's not necessarily repetitive. In fact, much of it is unique. Many of the laws that God commanded were already given at Sinai, but those covered Israel's mobile life in the desert. So Israel kind of needed to know how those laws and those commands applied once they secured and settled down in the promised land. The area that is going to be most affected is their worship, because they wouldn't be camped around the tabernacle anymore. You know, would they have to travel to the tabernacle anytime they wanted to worship God, even though they're all spread out in their various territories now? Or could they worship God wherever and however they wanted? Well, as Moses Tells them how to worship God when they're in the land. We will learn the basic principles of worshiping God that never change. So class is in session. You are now getting credit for Worship 101. Chapter 12. These are the statutes and judgments which you shall observe to do in the land. Which the Lord, the God of your fathers, gives you to possess it all the days that you live upon the earth. The word there, statutes and judgments, remember that refers to God's standards and God's heart. He says, we're going to give you God's standards and the heart behind those standards. And he says, you need to observe to do them, which you shall observe to do, which means you need to exercise great care in how you conduct yourself. What God's standard is and what God's heart is needs to be important to you. And you need to exercise care in your life to make sure you do it. Now he says, how long do they do it? He says, all the days that you live upon the earth. How does that work for us? Because we don't worship at the tabernacle, right? It says all the days on the earth. So how do we apply these principles to us? Well, we don't worship at the tabernacle because those things were a shadow that pointed to Jesus. The New Testament consistently states that all those things were just shadows that find their fulfillment in Christ. And Now, I would encourage you to get my teaching when we went through Exodus because I talk about how they were shadows to Christ when we look at the different parts of the tabernacle and the worship that went on there. And I can't go over that all tonight. Otherwise, we'll do the whole book of Exodus again. And nobody wants that. Just kidding. The idea, though, is that the principles still apply. But we practice them by directing our attention to how Jesus fulfills all those shadows. So as we look at these things, we'll see how God instructed Israel, and then we'll try to find the way that it applies to us as we find our substance in Christ. Now, in giving these worship instructions, Moses starts with the negative first. And so the first way to worship God is don't do it like the pagans do. He says in verse 2, "...you shall utterly destroy all the places wherein the nations which you shall possess..." served their gods upon the high mountains, upon the hills, and under every green tree. And you shall overthrow their altars, break their pillars, and burn their groves with fire, shall hew down the graven images of their gods, and destroy the names of them out of that place. For you shall not do so, or do it worship in that way, the way they worship their pagan gods, unto the Lord your God. So here we see that God says, you shall utterly destroy. In the Hebrew, it means it's destroy, destroy. It's doubled for emphasis. It means to annihilate and wipe out two things the pagan worship centers, and any paraphernalia that was associated with it. He says, you shall utterly destroy all the places, all the locations. When they would come into the land, if they found a pagan worship location, they were to wipe out all signs of it, whether it was upon the high mountains, or in the hills, under any green tree. Wherever it was, they needed to eradicate any sign that it existed. And then secondly, all the paraphernalia. So, you shall overthrow, which means to demolish, their altars. If you find, a pagan altar, you smash it to pieces. You will break their pillars, their standing stones where they would frequently come to worship. You can still actually see some of them in Israel today, so we know they weren't obedient to that. He says you break them down. You basically knock them all over. They would stack rocks for these things. And you shall burn their groves with fire. It's not that Israel weren't tree huggers. The idea here is that the groves referred to the Asherah poles, the Asherah worship that went on, the very sexualized worship that went on there. You burn all that down with fire. These of the idols that would be made. If you want to see what they're like, go to a ride in Animal Kingdom. Everest, you'll find all sorts of Asherah poles there. Please don't burn them down. I don't want to bail you out of jail. And hew down all their graven images and smash their, their metal images into pieces. So much so, it says you'll destroy the names of them out of that place, the memory of them, the fame of them, their reputation, so that no one even knows they existed. Why? Because God doesn't want to be worshipped like that. You shall not do so. You should not do in that same way unto the Lord your God. In other words, future generations in Israel should not see or experience anything that had ties to Canaanite idolatry when they would gather to worship the Lord. Okay? Easy principle. So how do we live that out? Because the truth is we can't destroy every idolatrous thing around us or in the world, uh, nor does God command the church to do that. We're not called to do that. That was something that Israel did in their nation. We are not a physical nation like that, so we can't control that, nor does God call us to do so. So that means idolatry is all around us. Now, because of that challenge, the church has struggled throughout history with how to do this. For example, when Christianity became the state religion in the fourth century AD, the church sought to ease unbelievers' entrance into the church by merging pagan celebrations with Christian worship. And so they said, well, the Feast of Ishtar, man, that's a bad thing. You know, I mean, there's all sorts of bad things that go on. So we celebrate the resurrection right around the same time. How about we call it Easter and we celebrate Christ rising from the dead instead of all this other stuff. And that's what they did. That doesn't mean that Resurrection Day is evil. The point is, though, is that they compromised, though. And they did that with tons of pagan holidays. Contrast that, where you have in the 70s and the 80s, when Christians started entering the rock music scene, you had parts of the church that critiqued them or picketed them for borrowing pagan ideas, as if using a drum or a guitar in and of itself is pagan. That's not what it is either. So we've struggled with this. We've compromised, and then we've ended up hurting our own at times because we don't want to be worldly. Sadly, now the pendulum has swung the other direction. Now, well-known Christian actors will perform in sex scenes or have no problem using foul language in their movies. It's just a movie. It's just fiction. I'm just playing a part. I know Christian authors who justify language or descriptive sex scenes in their artistic work because they say, well, that's how real life is, and you can't have this sanitized Christian stuff out there because nobody will do it. I can't reach unbelievers without including any of those artistic expressions. Now I'm going to really step on some toes. Some churches even sing songs by Taylor Swift. The devil's bothering you, shake it off. Or they sing Elsa from Frozen, Let It Go. Or you too, because they believe it brings unbelievers to church who'd never come otherwise. Contrastingly, we have others in the church who refuse to sing anything that was written past 1950 because all the music after that is tainted by the 60s culture, as if false teachers and worldly influence didn't exist before that time. So what's the answer? Well, when we look at what unbelievers are devoted to, the reputation and the fame of what they devote their lives to, while all of that surrounds us, our worship to God should be creatively birthed from Scripture, which is God's standards, or as we imitate those who did so before us. That's what our worship should consist of. It should be birthed from Scripture, creatively birthed from Scripture. You know, this morning, we sang a song that one of our guys wrote, brand new song, beautiful song. That song was right on. Tonight, we did one too. We need more of that. We don't need to sing every single Sunday, It is well with my soul, because we know that's a goodie. It is a goodie, and we should do it sometimes. But God is going to be birthing new things, because We are creatures in his image. We are made in his image, and we are designed to create. Now, some of you don't need to write music, and that's a good thing. I'm one of those people. I'm going to play the same three chords if you ask me to write a song. It's probably not going to be very interesting. But God has created some people with great creativity. And we need new songs. We need fresh songs that describe the fresh work that God is doing in our church or in our individual hearts as we seek him in his word. And when that's birthed through the scriptures, through God's standards, then that's a great thing. We also need to imitate those who did so before us. When, when we take something that God did in the past and we bring it back to life or we do it again, then that's a good thing as well. So this means we can create new songs or we can have new celebrations as well as continue older ones. It means that some things are fresh while other things remain constant. But in every case, we are not to imitate unbelievers in order to connect them. May I tell you that even if you think you're doing that, you will fail because that is not connecting them to Jesus. We are to follow the Lord's instructions and never introduce something that will create curiosity to explore things that are outside God's standards. Can I say that again? We are never to introduce something that will create curiosity to explore things that are outside God's standards. We're to follow the Lord's instructions. We'll see later on in the chapter why merging our devotion to God with the devotion of unbelievers is dangerous. But for now, we'll move on from what not to do, not to worship like the pagans, to what we should do. And the first thing that we should do is we need to let God define our worship. Look at verse 5. He says, But unto the place which the Lord your God shall choose out of all your tribes to put his name there, even unto his habitation shall you seek, and thither shall you come. And thither shall you bring your burnt offerings, your sacrifices and your tithes, your heave offerings of your hand and your vows and your freewill offerings and the first things of your herds and of your flocks. Now, if you want to learn what all those offerings are, again, I would say go back to Leviticus, my teaching there, because Moses breaks all those down. I don't want to revisit what each one of those things are. But suffice it to say, Israel's worship was to be in a public place of God's choosing. But unto the place which the Lord your God shall choose, that's where you'll go. That's where you'll bring your offerings. Now, the place that God will choose is called his habitation. It just means where one settles down or where one is enthroned. And both apply to the tabernacle. Remember, the tabernacle was the place that God instructed Moses to construct where his presence would be and they could fellowship with him, where they could worship him, get to know him better, and draw close to him. And all the rituals of worship, they would take place there. So this is the tabernacle that he's referring to, the place where God's glory dwelt. If they wanted to bring an offering to the Lord or celebrate with him, they had to come there. Now, we don't do that. The New Testament says that we're God's tabernacle. We're the temple of the Lord's Spirit now. And because we, therefore, are the location, since we're the location, that means whenever two or more are gathering in his name, it's a place of worship. So if you're gathering in his name to give glory to him, then that is a place of worship. So, of course, the logical follow-up question is, then why do we all meet in a place called a church? Will what do we need to do that for? Why do we do that? Why is that our practice Well, just as Israel's worship was public and chosen by God, the Lord calls us in the New Testament to participate in a public way that he chooses. That's fascinating because that means you and I don't choose a church, right? We don't choose a church. The Lord chooses one for us. God chooses a congregation for us. And he leads us to that public place of worship where we're to be faithful to participate. A lot of times when people are going through a difficult time, they're upset about their church and they're thinking about leaving. And I say, well, well don't go until the Lord directs you to go somewhere because you don't want to just leave and then show up somewhere. Maybe you'll end up where God doesn't want you to be. And it may be if you don't have anywhere that God's taking you, maybe it's because God wants you to stick through with what you're going through. Maybe God wants you to be part of the solution instead of being part of the problem. Now, I realize there are some places you might go to and you go, I can't go here. I mean, this is, it's unbiblical. These are things that I mean, it's not the Lord. And I get that. And if you find yourself in that situation, please leave. Hopefully no one gets up now. But the idea is God picks the church that you and I are supposed to be at. Because he knows what every church body needs. He sent you here because we need you. And you need me. (laughs) We need each other. So whether Christians meet in someone's home, like due to fear of persecution, or they met in the temple like the early church first believers did, or they met in a school, that's a Calvary thing, like Paul did in Ephesus. That wasn't what was important. The key was that fellow believers in a local area got together to worship the Lord. So that also means, unless you're the only believers in the city, you need to go to a local church. There's this idea, well, you know, I can worship God whoever I want. And so we just kind of worship in the home. We don't go to a local church. And if, if you're visiting with us tonight and you've said those things, I'm not here to pick on you. But I am here to challenge you. You won't find that in Scripture anywhere, anywhere. You need to be part of a public, local gathering of believers to worship the Lord. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25 is a command from God, not a suggestion. Let's look at it. We're going to be in Hebrews a lot, so you may want to keep a bulletin or something there because we're going to be going back and forth quite a bit. The cool part is is Hebrews basically takes all of the law of Moses and tells us how it applies to our lives. So that makes sense for us to be here for our explanation of how these principles apply to us. So in letting God define worship, he defines, he picks the location. It says here to us in verse 24 of Hebrews 10, in light of all that Christ has done, It says, let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking or abandoning the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. Already during this time, people had already stopped going to church, but exhorting one another. In other words, you need to be there to provoke unto love and to good works, to encourage each other, and you need to do it even more as you see the day of his return approaching. So we should be gathering more because it's closer now than it was 2,000 years ago. Now, this is not optional. It's a command from the Lord. It's the same command to love your enemy, to love your spouse. This is the same thing. It's a command from the Lord. So this isn't optional for us. Now, what does it mean to consider? Well, the word consider, it means to fix your eyes or your mind upon something. It means to fasten. We need to fasten ourselves to one another. So the idea of church is not just necessarily, I go to a building, but rather we are to fasten ourselves to fix our mind and our eyes onto a group of people who meet locally to worship the Lord. I'm to put myself in a public environment where guess what? The focus isn't on me, but it's on how I can bless and serve others. That's what church is. That's what church is. Now, what's interesting here is that word for assembling, that's the word synagogue. Which makes you think of what? Jewish synagogue, right? The Jewish synagogue is an interesting place. I didn't know this until I went, went to Israel. I used to think, well, that's where they worship. That was their church because that's how we view it today. But that's not true. In fact, they very rarely had religious services in their synagogues. The synagogue was used as a gathering place, the public gathering place for the community. They would worship there at times, but they would have city councils. They would have their version of HOA meetings, all that kind of stuff. Everything that was important took place in the local synagogue. So when it says here, there were not to forget for. That it means that the church is to be a public gathering of the community of believers. So if you're not part of one, you're welcome to come here. We'll take you. And only a few of us bite. (laughs) But whether it's here or another Bible-believing congregation, God doesn't give us the option to opt out. He picks the location, not us. Now not only we need to let him define worship by letting him pick the location, but he also picks the mentality. Can I challenge you, parents? Make sure you teach this to your kids. I frequently find families with children who are in middle school or high school who the child doesn't like a youth group or they don't like, and this isn't necessarily speaking in our church, but just I talk to a lot of people even outside our church. Their kids don't like the youth group or their kids don't, they don't like the church or whatever. They don't like the music. They don't like this. They don't like that. Mom and dad are like, well, we want them to like church. And so they let them go all over the place. You, when you do that, you are creating an environment where they think they get to choose what worship is. And that is not a good thing to instill in your kids. That's not a good thing. You know, we have told our kids, I told them, I said, you don't have to like church. You don't have to even believe what I believe. But as long as you're living under our roof, you're coming. You are coming. Because it's what we do. It's what we do. Because I want them to learn. It's not my choice to go here. It's the Lord's choice. It's the Lord who directs us. It's the Lord who's in charge. It's the Lord who defines what my worship is. So I encourage you, if your kids, if they are giving you a hard time or if you know somebody who's going through that situation, challenge them and say, listen, Mom, Dad, you gotta, you gotta lead your children through this. You need to teach them that worship isn't about you. And this is where we go. And this is what you need to do. My email is will at ccorl.com. Now, he also doesn't just pick the location. Back in Deuteronomy, he picks our mentality during worship. Look in verse 7, Deuteronomy 12, verse 7. So God picks the location, and then verse 7, he tells them how they're to do it. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God and you shall rejoice in all that you put your hand unto, you and your households, wherein the Lord your God has blessed you. The word there, eat, the idea is when you're consuming that meal, in most of the offerings that you would bring, the, the rare exception would be the burnt offering, but in most of the offerings you would bring, the worshiper actually got to eat a part of the meal, and it was kind of a celebration. But that was never in a vacuum, though. It was always, as it says here, before the Lord, which means toward or facing or toward the face of the Lord. So the picture that Moses creates here is one of sharing a table with the Lord where he is a guest and you are a guest. I'm blessed by what I'm eating, but he's also blessed by what he's eating. So the idea here is it means that worship wasn't just receiving from the Lord, but it was me giving something to the Lord. Worship can easily become a consumer event. The pastor or the music team or the kids' ministry team can be seen as responsible to leave you feeling like you got your money's worth, like if you went to a show. And church can kind of become consumer like that. But worship can also become stale and rigid where we're so terrified of being self-oriented that we miss out on God's goodness. I get in trouble sometimes. I'll be at pastor's meetings, and I'll get a little bit of trouble because they'll bring up and say, no, all this worship, this new worship, it's all about us. It needs to all be about the Lord. And I'm like, are you reading the Bible? I don't see that in my Bible. Now, certainly there are the fair share of songs that are all about the Lord, all about his majesty, his glory, his goodness. But then we have quite a few where David's going, Lord, help me. Lord, I don't know what to do. Lord, where are you? Lord. It's not about the Lord. And sometimes even David will say things that are unbiblical in those songs. David's angry and they say, Lord, break their teeth. And, and the Lord's probably up there going, Ah, oh, David. <laughs> I love you. I mean it's real. It's how you really feel. But that's not what the Lord wants, so that doesn't reflect his character. It's certainly not glorifying to him that David did that, and yet David's pouring his heart out to the Lord because that's where he was at. Songs, they should not all just be about God, nor should they all just be about us. The key is to avoid the extremes, and the key to avoiding both extremes is to remember that I'm dining with the king of the universe. See, that means when I recognize that I'm dining with the king, that this is a time of repentance, a time of surrender, a time of devotion. God should be consuming something when we gather, something that I've brought to him. But as I do so, I must also never forget that that king of the universe sits on a throne of grace and he wants to give me grace and help in my time of need. Look at Hebrews chapter 4, four fifteen and 16. It says, for we do not have a high priest which cannot be touched or sympathized with the feeling of our weaknesses, our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. In other words, when you come to the Lord with your struggles, you might have been here tonight and you might have, you know, oh, the overwhelming matchless love of Jesus, but you might be thinking, Lord, I don't even know if you love me. That's okay. Because the Lord wants to confirm to you that he does love you. As you're surrendering and you're choosing to say, Lord, I choose to sing this by faith even though I don't feel it right now. The Lord, as he's consuming that, as you're bringing that to him and he's enjoying your surrender and your repentance and your your devotion, he is blessing you as well. You're consuming something too. He's giving you mercy. Verse 16, let us therefore come boldly unto that throne of grace that we may obtain. We might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, God wants us not just coming to bring something to him to consume, but he wants us to come expecting to receive comfort, strength, and wisdom for our needs. There have been many times when we've been doing music and I can't even mouth the words because inside I'm just, I can't even, I can't even think of how I'm going to get past this thing that's facing me right now, but I'm, I'm there, I'm there, and I'm, I'm trying to sing it, even though I'm choked up and the tears are falling down my cheeks. But my heart is saying, yes, Lord, I do believe. I do trust you, even though right now my heart is broken. And in those moments, the Lord is sending his comfort, sending his strength, sending his wisdom. I am consuming. He is consuming.
1: God wants us to have a lifestyle of worship. When we consider all that God has done for us and who he is... His nature, His loving kindness, and gentleness towards us, gratitude and reverence will follow. Even when life gets tough, God is worthy of our worship, and we ought to offer a sacrifice of praise. The best way to worship God is by simply obeying His Word and trusting what He says. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.